the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And yes, we are live and back in studio after a week of production last week. There's so much to talk about, so little time, but we're glad you're here. We'll try to catch up. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind had nerve enough to go on vacation his first trip to Disneyland. So he's having fun with his family. He'll be back uh, later this week. He's producer of uh, the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today we're going to talk with Amy Peterson, author of Dangerous Territory, My Misguided Quest to Save the World. <laughs> it's a great a sort of memoir and uh, uh, something of a, a, a primer on what it means, uh, what it has meant and what it means to be a missionary. We're also going to talk with Valerie Richardson. She's a reporter with The Washington Times. We're going to talk about uh, uh, alleged Russian money behind anti-fracking uh, fracking activists, and we'll get into that. He's, this is not the first time it's been brought up. It's been brought up by secretaries of state um, from previous administrations as well. Anyway, we'll talk with Valerie Richardson about uh, that. And later in the program, we're going to look at some of what the Oregon legislature accomplished. Well, for good or for ill, you can decide for yourselves. But first, uh, Congress has returned to battle over the health care um, issue and the budget. Congress is uh, still trying to send the president his first unqualified legislative triumph nearly six months after Republicans grabbed full control of Washington. Well, the campaign to repeal and replace Obamacare or the uh, president's health care law, the Affordable Care Act, is bogged down in the Senate and uh, flirting with collapse. Uh, AP is reporting that efforts to pass a budget are stuck. There's no tax code overhaul package. Spending bills are in limbo, and it's not clear how leaders are going to find the votes to avert a federal default. Well, that probably was exciting for them uh, to come back to and to consider that there's an August recess. The question is, when and what will they accomplish? Well, the difficulties flow from Republican divisions. Collectively, the problems are threatening to sink top GOP priorities to undermine the party's ability to show it can govern effectively. And if they can't accomplish these two major initiatives, the question uh, that's being asked is, why are you there? Why did we send you there? Um, Lawmakers have uh, three weeks to work before the August recess. Some Republicans are making noise about shortening this uh, that respite. But uh, doing so would be a step shy of sacrilege on Capitol Hill. They don't seem to mind sacrilege in other areas, so maybe this would be one to consider. Well, it took the House several tries to pass its bill aiming to uh, annul the uh, Affordable Care Act. Now, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is struggling to find GOP votes for a similar package replacing the 2010 statute with uh, one that's easing insurance coverage requirements, cutting Medicaid, erasing penalties on uh, people not buying insurance and repealing tax increases on the well-off. Well, Mitch McConnell unexpectedly called off a pre-recess vote on the measure, which he'd uh, written pr- uh, privately, as it became clear it would lose. Well, with Dem- Democrats rather um, unanimously opposed to it, to him, McConnell needs at least 50 of the 52 GOP senators to vote yes uh, or witness the uh, mortifying crumpling of his party's high uh, decibel pledge to uproot Obama's law. 
Then there's the budget. Republicans are stuck on a fiscal blueprint for the coming budget year with disputes between conservatives and moderates over how deep to cut programs like food stamps. None of the 12 annual spending bills financing federal agencies is finished. Um, Fiscal year, September 30th. Disagreements have uh, slowed work on a tax overhaul and no one knows what bargains will be needed to um, make sure that uh, it passes in autumn, extending government borrowing authority, avoiding a crushing federal default. House Speaker Paul Ryan told reporters last week that he'd prefer to pass the budget in July, suggesting it might linger until fall, adding to Congress late year mountain of work. Some conservatives in Congress, meanwhile, want to um, include measures to cut spending as part of it, uh, any extension of uh, the government's borrowing authority. But Treasury Secretary Stephen Munchen, he reiterated on Sunday at ABC's This Week that the administration prefers a straightforward extension without including contentious agreements on spending cuts. Well, I'm sure everybody would you know, find that much more convenient. The problem is, uh, well, the problem. Then, of course, there's tax reform. Uh, he also knocked down a report last week that Trump administration advisor Stephen Banyan uh, has, or Bannon rather, has uh, floated a tax increase on the wealthiest households as a way to pay for tax cuts for middle-income Americans. I've never heard Steve uh, mention that. He went on to say, speaking on this week, he added that the increase is not part of the administration's tax plan. Bannon's proposal to raise the tax rate for Americans earning nearly 422, uh, rather $420,000 to 40% or higher was reported on the 2nd of July by a website. The administration is aiming to release its full tax plan by September, Munchen said, and um, uh, hopes to pass it into law by the end of the year. So far, the administration has issued a one-page summary of some pretty broad principles for tax reform, but few details. And the GOP congressional leadership and the Trump administration have struggled with the issue of how to offset the cost of tax cuts. Munchen said the um, administration's plan would pay for itself if uh, about $2 trillion in increased revenue resulting from faster economic growth uh, is included. Yet congressional budget scorekeepers may not agree that tax cuts would produce that kind of growth. Under congressional budget rules, tax cuts can be passed by the Senate with a simple majority, but only if they uh, if they don't increase the deficit after 10 years. That would allow the uh, Republicans who have 52 Senate seats to pass the bill without any Democratic votes, which is always a, a bit of a tenuous idea. That's how we got the Affordable Care Act. We'll see what actually happens. Meanwhile, two Republican senators declared that the bid to repeal health care, that law, well, it's dead. We're talking about Senator uh, John uh, McCain, who said in a televised interview on CBS, it may now be time for Republicans to come up with a new proposal with support from Democrats. Now, I don't know how he thinks that's going to satisfy the people that sent him and others back to uh, Uh, to Washington, but they admitted Sunday that the initial GOP bill to repeal and replace the nation's health care law is probably dead and that President Trump's proposal uh, to solely repeal it appears to be a non-starter. I think uh, my view is it's probably going to be dead, McCain said, uh, speaking of the GOP uh, bill. If Democrats are included, he said, it doesn't mean they uh, control it. It means they can have amendments considered. And even when they lose, then they're part of the process. That's why democracy is supposed to be Uh, what it's supposed to be all about. Well, Senator Bill Cassidy, speaking on Fox News Sunday, uh, he said, he told Chris Wallace, we don't know what what the plan is. Clearly, the draft plan is dead. Uh, Is uh, the serious rewrite plan dead? I don't know, he went on to say. So uh, the bottom line is not a whole lot uh, for 
the Republicans in the Senate to uh, uh, affirm as moving this whole thing forward. Meanwhile, Senator Ted Cruz, he's issued a plan uh, which aims to lower premiums for healthy people, has drawn support from the White House and some conservatives in the House. Uh, which would have to have to uh, approve any modified bill passed by the Senate. Ted Cruz uh, is uh, on Sunday sought to dismiss a criticism um, that uh, was pushed by Senate Democrat leader Chuck Schumer, insisting that people will be able to get the coverage they need at an affordable price. In other words, it's all rather up in the air at this point with new proposals being uh, offered. Again, uh, Ted Cruz and Mike Lee offering a key health reform amendment Um, that they say may make it more appealing for those uh, on the Senate side. Well, we'll continue to follow that story. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Amy Peterson, author of Dangerous Territory, My Misguided Quest to Save the World. No cape involved. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Coming up later this hour, in fact, next segment, we're going to talk with Amy Peterson. Her book is titled Dangerous Territory, My Misguided Quest to Save the World. Well, thanks to James Comey, Hillary Clinton escaped criminal prosecution for violating the Espionage Act. Now it's Comey who may have violated that same law. If he did, will he escape prosecution, courtesy of his good friend Robert Mueller? That's the question of the day. Well, the fired FBI director's legal predicament comes as The Hill reports that Comey authored seven memorandums reflecting the contents of his conversations with President Trump and that four of the memos have been determined to contain classified information. Well, if this is true and Comey kept these documents in his personal possession upon leaving government service and conveyed some of them to another individual without authorization, then it would appear that he committed multiple felonies under the Espionage Act. I know if your head is swirling so is mine trying to keep up with all of these violations of rules and laws and acts. Uh, it's a crime to mishandle classified information. 18 U.S.C. 798 and 1924 prohibit a government official from removing a classified document from its proper place place of custody to a location which is unsecure and disclosing it to an unauthorized person. Is that what Comey did? Well, it sort of looks like it. Well, how can Mueller discharge his responsibility in a fair, objective and impartial manner? That's also being asked. And will the mentor investigate and, if warranted, prosecute the protege? Well, some are suggesting it's doubtful. Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, stored 110 emails containing classified information on her home computer server, an unauthorized place. Yet Comey master uh, rather misinterpreted the uh, criminal statute by claiming she did not intend to violate the law. This is not the legal standard, as any knowledgeable lawyer would tell you, but Clinton was never indicted, though she should have been. Well, David Petraeus, former director of the CIA, was not so fortunate. He pled guilty to removing classified documents to his personal residence where he stored them in an unsecured drawer. He also gave them to his biographer, who was not authorized to receive them. John Deutsch, also a former CIA director, agreed to plead guilty to keeping classified material on his unauthorized laptop computer, but was pardoned by President Bill Clinton just days before the formal charges were filed. Comey insists the information contained in the memo he gave to his lawyer friend who leaked it to the media was unclassified. 
If true, it's not a violation of the Espionage Act. But if Comey gave his friend, Columbia University Professor Daniel Richmond, any of the four documents containing classified information, then he committed one or more crimes. Richmond now claims he received four memos from Comey, but none were marked classified. The good professor may not realize that the marking in no way determines its classified status. The content dictates the classification. Uh, according to um, uh, Chief Intelligence Correspondent Catherine Herridge, uh, who has consistently pointed out that that is the standard. Importantly, if Comey maintained these four documents in his personal possession, as his Senate testimony suggests, then he may have committed at least four more crimes in the same way that Clinton, Petraeus, and Deutsch did. Again, if uh, it is a felony to keep documents containing classified information in an unauthorized place, such as your personal possession, home, or private unsecured computer. Well, that comes in the context of what will ultimately be an investigation. Apparently, the team is still being put together. As a federal prosecutor in 1990, Andrew Wiseman, he persuaded mobsters to break the mafia code and testify against their brothers in crime, winning a conviction against Genovese family boss Vincent Vincent the Chin Gigante or something like that. Later, as he headed the Justice Department's Enron task force, his ability to persuade his key witness to testify about what they saw in the inside helped secure a series of convictions. Now, Mr. Wiseman is part of the all-star team that former FBI Director Robert Mueller, who will judge Comey's uh, conduct as, as well as others, has put together a special counsel pursuing a look into Russian meddling in the November presidential election and suspected collusion with Trump's campaign figures, a case legal analysts say is brimming with the potential for co- um, uh, cooperators. Ten of the 12 lawyers on Mr. Mueller's team have been revealed and their political leanings have sparked even early controversy, as early as uh, as least, rather, five uh, have donated to Democratic campaigns, although I, you'd be hard-pressed, I would imagine, to find individuals capable of serving who haven't given to campaigns of one sort or another. But analysts say the team is full of legal stars, including Mr. Wiseman, who have the skills and the experience to handle the investigation fairly wherever it leads. They include a former Watergate prosec- prosecutor, an experienced Supreme Court litigator, a former FBI counterterrorism agent, a prosecutor with experience in organized crime cases, and the head of the Justice Department. Department's Public Corruption Unit in Manhattan. Recruiting team members with experience probing financial cases or who are familiar with national security protocol will be essential. Mr. Mueller appears to have both covered. Um, Philip um, Lakovara, uh, who was part of the Watergate special prosecutor team, has said anybody who has done financial crimes investigations knows uh, sometimes you start an investigation and you determine there is nothing there. But the key is having people who know what to look for. It's the idea that they have people with experience in big document cases that suggest to me this will be a serious investigation. The question is whether or not it will stick to the, the primary issues or, as we've seen in every virtually every other case, um, there will be rabbit trails that lead to other things. Mr. Weissman and Deputy, Deputy Solicitor General Michael Dearbin uh, who has uh, who's argued more than 100 cases before the Supreme Court. Each of uh, have had a hand in an obstruction of justice case that some legal scholars say may illustrate an aggressive approach by Mr. Mueller in the Russian investigation. As director of the Justice Department's Enron probe, Mr. Weissman oversaw the 2002 uh, prosecution of the accounting firm Arthur Anderson, which was uh, found guilty of obstruction after employees were told to shred documents related to their energy company client. Well, after cutting his teeth prosecuting organized crime cases in Brooklyn, legal analysts say Mr. Weissman 
Sullivan brought to the table experience flipping witnesses that helped him secure the star witness in the uh, Anderson case. Uh, well, again, uh, the the uh, the situation is, or the the council is designed to deal with um, the allegations that Russia meddled in the U.S. elections and allegations that the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians in their effort to seek the White House. Well, former Speaker uh, Newt Gingrich, a top ally of the president, has been critical of those hired for the team because of their political contributions. At least five members of the team have donated to Democrats in recent elections, according to records from the Center for Responsive Politics. Republicans are delusional if they think the special counsel is going to be fair, Gingrich wrote on Twitter last month. Mr. Trump told Fox News last month that it was ridiculous to have Hillary Clinton supporters as members of the investigative team. Among the donors are Jeannie a former deputy assistant attorney general for the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, who donated $5,400 to Mr. Clinton's presidential campaign PAC, Hillary for America. She gave $4,800 to President Obama's campaign as well. Again, I would imagine you might be hard-pressed to find those who have not um, contributed to uh, political campaigns at the highest level. And while working at the Wilmer Hale law firm with Mr. Mueller, Ms. Ree was on the legal team that represented the Clinton Foundation. She was also part of the team that defended Mrs. Clinton against lawsuits over her email practices as Secretary of State. Now, that may be a little more suspect. She worked alongside high-profile Democratic lawyer Jamie Gorlick, who now represents Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, the president's daughter and son-in-law. Well, earlier in her legal career, Ms. Ree, a former assistant U.S. attorney, Attorney, successfully prosecuted Washington teachers union officials who embezzled nearly five million dollars. Well, Watergate prosecutor James Quarles, the third who has worked uh, at Wilmer Hale since the mid 70s, has a more bipartisan donation record, though his roughly twenty thousand dollars in contributions over the past few years skews towards Democrats at the presidential level. He gave to failed Democratic nominees Mike Dukakis and Al Gore. Elizabeth Prelogger, an appellate lawyer from the Solicitor General's office who studied in Russia on the Fulbright Scholarship, gave two hundred and fifty dollars to the Hillary for America Political. Political Action Committee, and in 2012 donated $250 to Mr. Obama's campaign. Andrew Goldstein, a federal prosecutor who headed the Justice Department's <clears throat> public corruption. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> ah, a little sip there. <coughs> Wish we had that <coughs> cough button. Anyway, he uh, <coughs> gave to Obama's campaign in 2012. Might be a good time for a break since I can't quite restore my voice. Anyway, you get the idea that many of uh, <clears throat> the members on this uh, committee may lean one way, well, one way. We're going to take a quick break. I'll clear my voice. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And yes, my throat is uh, now clear. <clears throat> My next guest wanted to make a difference. She wanted to do big things for God, to change the world. Well, you'll hear slogans like these at retreats and concerts, she points out, inspiring you to Christian service. But what happens when inspiration meets reality? Well, That's the subject of a new book, Dangerous Territory, My Misguided Quest to Save the World. Amy Peterson is a writer. English as a second language instructor and assistant director of honors programming at Taylor University. She lives with her fellow adventurer husband and their two children uh, on two acres of Indiana farmland. But before she lived there with them, she was in Southeast Asia and she writes about her adventure in her book, Dangerous Territory. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, like so many of us who uh, have read 
uh, stories about missionaries of uh, bygone era, we have sort of a romantic notion of what uh, serving Christ in the capacity of missionary might be like, even if we like to use different language to describe it. What um, what did you see? Uh, what was your vision uh, for life after university? And explain to our listeners how you explained that to people uh, who asked you about, so what are you going to do after college? Well, after Right after college, I had decided to go teach English as a second language in Southeast Asia. And I was going with a Christian organization, an organization that placed Christians as English teachers in universities in countries that were closed to the gospel, where, where missionaries weren't allowed to enter. Um, so I kind of explained that differently to different groups of people, you mm-hmm. know, to um, to my well-educated liberal arts friends from college, I would just say I was going to um, teach English at a university in Southeast Asia um, because I knew that they had some some ideas about what uh, the word missionary meant. You know, there were some historical connections, um, cultural imperialism, some of these things that, rightly or wrongly, were what would spring to their minds. Um, so I kind of avoided the word missionary with a lot of people because of some of those associations. And then, you know, even with people who supported me, friends at church, I didn't like to use the word missionary because of some of those associations. So I would just say I was going to live my life as a Christian in a country where Christ was not known and to try to offer a needed service teaching English to students there. Um, but even though I would say it in that sort of understated way, I definitely had a strong desire to do something big for God and to um, see changes in the world. You write in your introduction, I wanted to be extraordinary, the greatest, truest kind of Christian one would like, uh, one whose life counted, no one who raised 2.5 children behind a white picket fence in American suburbia. I wanted to be one of heaven's heroes. But after two years in Southeast Asia, I moved to the foothills of Southern California, and your experience was a little bit different, and what you learned along the way is the subject of your book that I think helped all of us to recognize what is our, our, our goal, what's the priority, what is God calling us to do? Yeah, you know, I think growing up in the church, um, I had heard this message, whether people intended to send this message or not, I had kind of heard this message that there were two kinds of Christians. There were your ordinary, standard, go to church on Sunday, live your normal American life Christians, and that was good. But then there was also the super spiritual Christian who gave up everything and went to a foreign country and became a missionary, or if not a missionary, a pastor. You know, I I sort of heard this idea that there were two levels, um, normal Christian and super spiritual Christian. And so with that in mind, I thought, well, who would choose to be just a normal Christian? I want to be the super spiritual one, the (laughs) best one. Um, and I think one of the things that I learned and that I write about in this book is um, how false that dichotomy is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, throughout the book, you offer um, what you call interludes, and you give a brief history of uh, of the missionary narrative of short term missions. Let's talk, start with the uh, the interlude: a brief history of the missionary narrative. This is what informed your thinking about what your your life was going to be and what you were about to embark upon. Talk a little bit about it. Yeah, well, I grew up reading missionary biographies that were written for children, so like chapter book missionary biographies, and in them I found these really inspiring stories of um, people who did amazing things for God. 
And I think as a child, I lacked the framework to understand what those experiences were really like. I could understand the glory. I couldn't understand some of the difficulty and the hardship and the tragedy of what it really means um, to follow God and some of the heartbreak that often accompanies those kinds of radical decisions. Um, so, so I had this sort of glorious idea, and it really dates back to the first missionary narrative in America, which was um, the journals of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a missionary to Native Americans for just a few years. Um, he he was then he was sick and he died. And he was friends with Jonathan Edwards, who's a famous um, preacher and pastor. Jonathan Edwards took his journals and edited them and published them with an introduction. And that was sort of the first missionary narrative in American history, and it really captured the imagination of the Christian American public. And it was actually the best-selling of all of Jonathan Edwards' works, and it sort of perpetuated this, like, mythological frontier hero missionary and made David Brainerd and the imaginations of most Americans into this sort of, like, frontier saint who... um you know, could see a bear and the bear wouldn't attack him because he was so holy or he um, had trouble walking because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer that when he then tried to stand, he was too stiff to stand. Um, These sort of like legends grew up about him and people were really inspired by him. Um, In fact, the next generation of missionaries after him often kept journals just in the same way that he kept his and even would write in their journals, like, I'm aspiring to be like David Brainerd. And so so the story really started with him, and ever since then we've been telling the same kind of story about the missionary, um, one that tends to sort of glamorize the missionary life a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, you um, went to a Southeast Asian country that you cannot name uh, to teach English as a second language. Tell us a little bit about your uh, initial experience there, you um, meet the, the country director uh, at the airport with, uh, um, with a heart full of adventure and, and ready to serve. Tell us about your experience early on. Yeah, my, um, the people in my organization had warned me that the place that I was going was not an easy place to live. They said it was it was a poor town. It was still ravaged from a recent war, and they didn't know of any Christians there. Um, and in fact, the only foreigners in the town would be myself and my my teammate. Um, we were the only foreigners they knew of, and so we were going to a, a very unreached um, place. And they said, "Don't expect much to happen there." Um, it usually takes three years of presence in a city before you see the Holy Spirit at work. So my teammate and I moved in, and we lived in apartments on campus of the university and started teaching classes um, right away. And we really found that the people there were lovely, warm, and hospitable. They really welcomed us. They helped us learn our way around and how to buy food at the fresh air market and um, and we really were enjoying our time there. And even though the people in my organization had warned me not to expect much, I had asked my supporters to pray that by the end of my first year there, I would have two or three young women who I could be discipling in the faith. I didn't really expect that that would happen, but I felt like I should ask for that. So that's what we were praying. And about a month into my teaching, a young woman came and knocked on my door 
And basically the first question she asked me was, are you a Christian? Uh, and, and she kept coming back week after week with more questions about my faith. And we started reading the Bible together. And um, it, was, it was clear really quickly that God was working in her life and had brought her to me. Now, for the, the listener or your reader who gets to that point in the book, it sounds to me like you are, in fact, extraordinary, uh, a great, <laughs> true kind of Christian, and that you're changing the world. Uh, yeah, you know, during my first year overseas, it felt like God was answering my prayers in really miraculous ways, and, and that really amazing things were happening. My faith was really strengthened by what I saw and by the way those prayers were answered, um, but then things took a somewhat unexpected turn. Now, your expectations had been set by what most of our expectations are set by, and that's uh, books that we've read, stories that we've heard of missionaries serving abroad. Uh, Today, the word missionary isn't used quite the same way as it once was, for reasons you've already uh, commented on. At what point did you start to um, really question, what is it that God wants to do in me and with me in this setting and, and through the remainder of my life that changed your rather starry-eyed view of what it meant to serve as an, in quotes, extraordinary Christian? Well, after my first year of working in Southeast Asia, I had um, seen three young women come to faith, and there were another handful who were interested in learning more and studying the Bible with us each week. And so it really seemed that this little church was blossoming just out of nowhere. I came home for my summer break, um, intending to return the next year and keep teaching and, and keep trying to shepherd this church into existence. And almost immediately after I came home, uh, my students were found by the police in Bible study and taken into the station and interrogated. Um, they were threatened their Bibles were confiscated. They were told things like, if you keep meeting together, keep talking about Jesus, you could be kicked out of university. Um, You would never be able to get a job. Your parents might lose their jobs, these kinds of threats. And so I was back in the States, um, safe and happy in my parents' home and hearing these stories from them. And it broke my heart and it made me start to question um, a lot of things, and, and it made them start to question things, too. You know, one of the young women in my Bible study emailed me and said, does God love Americans more than he loves my people? Why is this happening to me? Mm. And I think that that was the moment when I started to question the narrative a little bit and think um, more deeply about what I was doing and what the consequences were and what it all really meant. But then the following year, I ended up going back to a neighboring country. Um, So I went to Cambodia for my second year of teaching English overseas. And I went back with a a lot more questions and a lot more uncertainty in my mind um, and a lot of doubts for God even. Um, So it was during that year when I really started to figure some things out. We're going to visit that in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Amy Peterson. She's the author of Dangerous Territory, My Misguided Quest to Save the World. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Amy Peterson. She's the author of Dangerous Territory, My Misguided Quest to Save the World. Now, we were talking about your second missionary tour, if you will. Uh, you had gone to a second country, and after the challenges that your early charges faced, um, you began to, to question what your role was, and you even went so far as to question um, uh, to question God. Talk a little bit about that that period and what kinds of questions you were asking, and more importantly, what kind of answers were were you getting? Well, I had a lot of questions for God. You know, here I had gone and spent a year in Southeast Asia and seen miraculous things and had God answer my prayers in what seemed like really miraculous and direct ways. And then all of a sudden, um, my students had been taken in and interrogated by the police. I had been banned from returning to the country, and God seemed silent. And so while I was asking him, why are you letting this happen? What's going to happen to these baby believers and um, and and what about me? You know, I thought that I had found my place and the work that I was maybe going to do for the next decade, you know, and then it was all taken away from me. And I had a lot of questions for God, mostly summed up in why. Um, and I didn't feel like I was hearing any response from God. And so for months, I was sort of in this dark night of the soul, trying to understand what had happened and why. Um, and there were a lot of things that I learned through that. But ultimately, one of the most important was I realized that when I went overseas originally, um, I had been committed to God, but I had not been surrendered to God. And I sort of thought that they were the same thing. But commitment to God was about me and about what I could do for God and my desire to do something big. Uh, surrender was about my willingness to be useful or to be useless, um, to be whatever God had in mind, whether it seemed like something big or not, um, whether it seemed like I was seeing results or not. And, you know, um, one of the things I realized there is that we really have no way of understanding what is a big thing for mm-hmm. God. Yes. And when, when Jesus was on earth, uh, you know, he said the first will be last, um, the, the least is the greatest. You know, when he saw the widow putting her pennies into the offering at the temple, he said, that is the greatest gift of all. And and I think that Jesus was trying to show us that on this side, we have no way of understanding what is big or small for the kingdom. All we can do is be faithful with what is in front of us. Mm. You reference Isaiah 55 in the book, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And it goes on from there, uh, making Mm -hmm. reference to his creation. Uh, So you came to the conclusion that... Um, your understanding of God and your approach to serving him really had to be um, dramatically changed so that you were surrendered to him in a way that did not dictate in your mind what the outcome of, of your service, of your surrender would be. Yes, exactly. And it wasn't an easy mm-hmm. mental shift. You know, after I came back after my two years in Southeast Asia, 
Um, I was teaching English at a private high school, and I really struggled with the fact that that did not seem as important or valuable or meaningful to the kingdom to me as the work I had done in Southeast Asia. And God just said to me, you know what? Uh, you don't, you don't get to decide what's important or valuable. You are, you be faithful in the work that I've put in front of you for now. And, um, and anything that you're doing to restore, um, to, to help make all things new is a part of bringing my kingdom to earth, is what God said to me. And, and that's been something I have to continually remind myself when I feel like, you know, now I'm a mother. Um, I've spent more hours than I can uh, imagine changing diapers and washing dishes, and those don't always feel like important or valuable tasks for the kingdom. And maybe because we don't hear pastors often from the pulpit praising people who do those kinds of yeah. mundane things, you know? Yeah. Um, but those are the things God calls us to sometimes. Yeah. Now, this second adventure abroad, um, how long were you there, and was there fruit that remained that you recognized, or did you just have to walk away by faith, knowing that God was at work, maybe in ways that you didn't fully uh, understand? Yeah, my second year was quite different. My students didn't show a lot of interest in in God or the Bible, Um, and so I, I built some good relationships, I had some good classes, and I learned a lot of things myself. But I, I don't know, other than that, what God did with that. Tell us about your life now and um, how what you learned in surrendering to God has served you in doing extraordinary things, in quotes, uh, today. <laughs> well, now I work at a small Christian university in the rural Midwest at Taylor University, and I'm a mother of two. I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, and I'm a writer. And in each of those capacities, I find that God is helping me to um, to to um, help others learn how to use their words in more thoughtful ways when they talk about God. And I think, um, you know, th- that even kind of dates back to my hesitancy about using the word missionary. You know, mm-hmm. what is that word communicating? And is there a more effective way to speak about um, the work we're doing in the world, uh, the work God is doing in the world? And so as a teacher on campus and with my with my kids and in my writing, I'm I'm always trying to think about how can we speak about God in, in ways that are true and avoid cliches and avoid um, easy answers that aren't real answers and, and avoid um, that kind of mistake of like uh, saying that some kinds of work are more spiritual yeah. than others. Yeah, yeah. Well, I tell you, um, reading the book and talking with you here today, the thing that's most extraordinary to me is a young woman who makes the decision that she is going to surrender to Christ and whatever context he places her in to serve him, to do so faithfully. That, to me, is an extraordinary story, whether or not there's a the high adventure of, of going abroad, um, raising your children and teaching others. That is a, an amazing story. And I thank you so much for joining us here to share it. Thank you so much for having me. Again, Amy Peterson is the author of Dangerous Territory, My Misguided Quest to Save the World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we'll talk with Valerie Richardson. She's a reporter for Washington Times. We're going to talk about Russian money trying to influence um, energy policy in the U.S. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is 
producing, even though he's technically on vacation. Well, Washington Times reporter Valerie Richardson wrote an insightful piece uh, that raises some serious questions regarding Russia's ongoing effort to undermine the U.S. energy industry. She points out in her headline, key Republicans are calling for a probe to see if Russia funded anti-fracking groups. Well, Russia is funding U.S. environmental groups in an effort to suppress our domestic oil and gas industry, specifically hydraulic fracking. That's a quote from an unnamed congressional leader. Well, Russians may be funneling millions through a Bermuda shell company that then passes the money to radical environmental groups to help them oppose U.S. energy. Billionaires uh, Tom Steyer and others have also contributed millions to this effort. Well, what is Russia's motive in working against U.S. energy production? Well, here to talk with us about that is Valerie Richardson. She is a columnist with The Washington Times. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, there's a lot of talk these days about Russia and its effort to undermine the United States and its interests. Uh, the Cold War is over, but it seems that there are elements of it that have uh, have survived. Uh, you point out in your column that this question that's been raised by key Republicans, this isn't the first time there have been allegations that Russia is uh, is trying to undermine uh, the United States energy independence. Right. I mean, it, this has been going on for about, I would say, three or four years now, with these sort of suspicions and allegations that Russia is funneling money through a, a Bermuda Shell company to uh, nonprofit foundations in the United States, like Sea Change, that in turn fund environmental groups. And um, it, it's one of those things that, that it's really difficult to prove in the sense that the nonprofits don't have to um, disclose their funders. So, you know, we know that, you know, Sea Change may be giving money to, let's say, Sierra Club, but, but where does Sea Change get its money from? Well, they don't have to disclose that. So it's, it's kind of a, um, it's kind of a, a tricky setup for people who are, 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 you know, basically trying to get to the bottom of this. But clearly Russia has every motive in the world to, Cut down on U.S. energy production. I mean, right now the you know the price of natural gas has fallen in the wake of the the fracking boom. You know, the people are or the companies are now using hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling to get at oil and gas that they could not reach. Um, you know, as recently as a decade ago, and as a result, we have this enormous natural gas and boom, in particular, an oil boom. That's driving down the prices and, you know, making it, you know, much more attractive for other countries to import our natural gas and oil instead of Russia's. Um, last month, for the first time, we sent natural gas to Poland, which has long been a Russian uh, customer. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a something that's going to be worrisome for Russia. And obviously, you have in the United States already sort of a built-in opposition to this in terms of the environmental movement, which has really targeted fracking. Um, um, despite the fact that so far the EPA has not found any link between, let's say, groundwater contamination and fracking operations. So, um, but nonetheless, there's, there's enormous opposition, you know, like I said, within the environmental movement, and we've already got three states that have banned fracking. So, um, so yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting um, issue, and this letter from the Republicans on the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee urging the Treasury Department to investigate this you know, it comes also at an interesting, interesting time, what was, you know, the investigation into the Russian election tampering, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you write that the Republicans said the panel is already conducting oversight into what appears to be a concerted effort by foreign entities to funnel millions of dollars through various nonprofit entities to influence the U.S. energy market. Do these entities, these nonprofits, do they know where the money is coming from, at least the, the originators, and then they're funneling the money? Or is this, uh, is it an inadvertent 
uh, use of this money that undermines uh, U.S. interests? Yeah, exactly. Not necessarily. There's no reason to suspect that, say, Sierra Club knows that the grants they're getting from Sea Change are coming from Russia. They, they would they would not necessarily have any reason to suspect that, or they they wouldn't they wouldn't have to know that. They know that they're getting money from a foundation, and that's it. And where the money comes from before that is is not something that they would need to know, and that they would even necessarily know. So um, yeah, so so you could be you know these environmental groups that are receiving these donations, you know, maybe you know completely in the dark about where this money is coming from, and and they're already you know working to stop fracking. I don't think. Um, this is necessarily the reason that they've started to oppose fracking. They've been against it for a long time. But, you know, clearly the more money you have to, you know, work on these operations, the more successful you're, you're likely to be in terms of the court of public opinion. And uh, like I said, we've seen three states in the last few years cut off, uh, basically ban fracking. And, and these were three states that didn't have fracking going on at the time. We're talking New York, Maryland, and um, Vermont. Vermont and Maryland didn't have any fracking. New York didn't have any fracking either, but New York could actually could actually have fracking. I mean, they've got the Marcellus Shale there. They've got that whole southern tier of New York, which is which is very you know economically you know, downtrodden. I mean, that's an area that's really struggled. You know, there there are people there that would love to see the, the oil and gas industry come in there and provide jobs and and more economic benefits. But the the governor shut it down. He he said no fracking in New York. And so as a result, we see some of these um, secession movements going on right now. There's some of the people living in the southern tier who are like, let's just join Pennsylvania, you know. Mm. But um, but yeah, so so you've had some success there in these places, and and the anti fracking movement is also very big in places like California and Colorado that do have a lot of fracking. Yeah, you, um, in Colorado, something like five cities have banned it. All of those have been overturned by the courts. You point out that the so, uh, letter um, acknowledged that the Russian government and complicit parties have executed a political agenda with little or no paper. Trail, making it very difficult to prove. So making this information available is one thing, proving it is another. What might we hope to accomplish with these uh, members of Congress now making the point that this is a concern? Well, they obviously have subpoena power, so presumably they could get out documents that, that wouldn't ordinarily be publicly available. But they're really looking for the Treasury Department to take the lead, and, and clearly the Treasury Department has, you know, a lot of authority in terms of getting out documents and financial records that, you know, um, you know, maybe even members of Congress and committee members could not get a hold of. So that would be a huge step if the Treasury Department would, in fact, agree to this. Um, Lamar Smith, who heads that committee, has, has you know, and, and the, the relevant subcommittee chairman have, um, have asked. Uh, the Treasury Department to do this, and, and we'll see what happens. Um, it has been something that you know that people have been complaining about, you know, for a while, thinking, you know, where's all this, you know, anti-fracking money coming from? What's well, coming from these foundations? Well, where are they getting it from? And you know, a lot of fingers are pointing at Russia, but but like you say, proving it's another thing. Yeah. And, but yeah. These, this is an agency that could do it if, if there is something there. Presumably, it would have the resources to find it. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow the story, and I appreciate your talking with us about it, uh, Valerie Richardson, who is a reporter with Washington Times. Um, again, the uh, environment. Environmentalists have hotly denied uh, doing the bidding of the Russian oligarchs. And as she pointed out a moment ago, and these members of Congress, it's not always possible to, to make that tie. If you can't prove it, I'm not sure how useful this is. But I did think it was important to point out, and this is part of the column, that allegations of a connection between Russia President Vladimir Putin and environmental advocacy groups are hardly new. She writes that in 2014, former U.N. Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen uh, said that Russia had engaged actively with so-called non 
non-governmental organizations to maintain European dependence on imported Russian gas. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said during a private 2014 meeting that Russia had funded phony environmental groups. Drew Anderson, senior fellow at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, cited an intelligence report on Russia's election meddling, showing clear evidence that the Kremlin is uh, financing and choreographing anti-fracking propaganda in the United States. Putin hopes to increase oil and gas prices, destabilize the U.S. economy, threaten America's energy independence, using U.S. uh, environmental and scientific groups to act unknowingly to advance Russian interests, uh, is genius and remarkable, she uh, concludes the article. So it is a rather interesting uh, allegation that does seem to have some teeth to it. We'll uh, certainly continue to follow the story uh, should more evidence become available. Fifteen minutes after five o'clock is our time. When we return, we're going to talk about the Oregon legislature that has um, declared signee die this last week. We'll let you know some of the highlights or lowlights of uh, its accomplishments. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this beautiful Monday and a bit cooler afternoon. Well, Oregon lawmakers declared sine die. The legislative session has ended, but they'll be back next year. They did a number of things. They established and approved the state real ID. Lawmakers okayed the controversial reproductive health bill. We'll tell you more about that in a moment. The legislature passed a plan for early elections if two tax plans are referred to voters. Uh, Oregon Senate leaders, uh, they nixed the state's move to pick presidents uh, via national popular vote. The Oregon tobacco age headed to uh, 21 after lawmakers passed new rules. Some of these things are still pending the uh, governor's signature, but it's expected. This was a progressive Oregon legislative session. Well, as I mentioned, Oregon decided it will go along with the federal government's tougher standard for driver's licenses. So the state's travelers may not have to show a passport to board a plane. The state uh, has missed a federal deadline for compliance with federal real ID laws. So if the federal government doesn't grant a fourth extension on the requirements, Oregon's ID will not get on the uh, a plane beginning uh, January, rather Oregonians and Oregon ID will not get you on a plane beginning January 22nd. Lawmakers are hoping their uh, 56 to 1 vote in favor of real ID for Oregon in Senate Bill 374 uh, will demonstrate the state is making serious and significant, by the way that's in quotes, uh, progress and the feds will grant that extension. If If the uh, feds do, in fact, grant the extension, Oregon's current IDs will continue to work at the airport and federal facilities until the state begins issuing compliant IDs, which should be some point in the not too distant future. Well, July of 2020, that's according to the Oregon Department of Transportation. They figures it uh, can have them ready by then at the earliest. This will be necessary to get on a plane, even for domestic flights, even if you get a Portland or go uh, or you uh, Get on Portland and go to Seattle. You'll need real ID or um, uh, failing that a passport. That's what Mike Nearman, Republican out of Polk County, said on Thursday. It's necessary we get this done and keep the engines of commerce moving. Well, the engines will be uh, moving as Oregon has finally decided, yeah, I guess we'll do this. Meanwhile, Democrats in the Oregon legislature succeeded in approving uh, a switch that requires the state to hold a special election in early 2018, no later that year, or not later that year, if opponents of two major tax plans refer either of those measures to voters. Now, lawmakers approved new taxes to fund transportation projects and preserve Medicaid coverage for 350,000 Oregonians this session. But there are people who oppose both tax schemes who've said they'll try to get voters to undo them. 
Senate Bill 229 would uh, require the state to hold a special election on the 23rd of January if a $550 million health care tax increase is referred to voters. A possible referral of the transportation funding bill would be placed on a May 2018 primary election ballot. If not for the bill, those referrals would end up on the November 2018 ballot. Now, the November ballot tends to be the one that draws more people. So what's the message being sent here? One wonders. Three House Republicans, Representative Julie Parrish of West Lynn, Representative Sal Esquivel of Medford, and Representative Cedric Hayden have already started gathering signatures to refer portions of House Bill 23. to voters. The Republicans want to repeal a new 1.5% tax on insurance premiums while having intact, or rather leaving intact, an increase in hospital taxes. Uh, Parrish said in a statement earlier this week that provision is a sales tax on health care, and worse, it's a sales tax only for those who buy their insurance in the marketplace. Democrats want an early election if the health care bill is referred to the ballot because the measure would be put on uh, on hold until the vote. The delay would open a hole in the state budget that lawmakers would be forced to uh, close another way in order to avoid kicking people off Medicare. Well, voters have a constitutional right to have their voices heard if enough signatures are gathered to bring a referendum forward. That's what uh, Representative Dan Rayfield, a Democrat from Corvallis, said in a statement. Senate Bill 229 allows voters to resolve this question as quickly as possible so that we can move forward based on their answer. It's a prudent approach that ensures that Oregonians don't lose their health care in the meantime. Well, the timing may be fortuitous, but it's also very helpful if you want uh, fewer people turning out to vote. Depends on who's motivated, I suppose, uh, if they make it on the ballot. The bill passed on party line votes in both the Oregon House and Senate on Thursday now heads to the governor's desk where it is now um, resident if it hasn't already been signed. It's not clear whether any group will refer the transportation plan to voters. The state's largest public employee union, Service Employees International Union, Local 503, threatened to refer the $5.3 billion transportation funding bill aimed at easing congestion on the Portland metropolitan area and paying for other projects around the state to voters if lawmakers fail to overhaul and increase corporate taxes. There's been talk that other groups, such as truckers and the fuel industry, could refer a gas tax increase to the ballot. No specific threat yet, but it could be on its way. So we'll just have to uh, uh, to wait and see. Let's see. I'm looking for, um, yeah, this one here. Well, the Oregon legislature has managed its uh, big achievement of the 2017 session. It passed a massive transportation bill on the 6th of July. The bill calls for Oregon to raise $5.3 billion in new taxes and fees over the next decade to pay for major freeway expansion and improvements to mass transportation. Some of those plans, like the nation's first bicycle sales tax, are drawing more attention than others, but it's all part of a much uh, larger plan. Uh, one of the key issues or ways, rather, the bill hopes to uh, raise revenue is by establishing toll roads. Now, when I was a kid, I remember going across the bridge between Portland and uh, and uh, Vancouver and you'd pay a toll. It would take forever. You'd stop and you'd pay a little toll. It's, I'm sure it's much more high tech today, but we seem to be going back in time. The bill calls for tolls on Interstate 5 and Interstate 205, beginning at the Oregon-Washington border and continuing throughout the Portland metro area, concluding where the two highways intersect in Wilsonville. The bill calls for the Oregon transportation. Now, would that affect you, Clark, as you're making your way? Yeah, you'd have to 
pay that. The bill calls for the Oregon Transportation Commission to receive approval by the 31st of December of next year from the Federal Highway Administration to collect the tolls. Now, how much will you have to pay for the trip to, on the highway? That's going to depend on the time of day. The bill authorizes the Oregon Department of Transportation to use value pricing, a system that changes or rather charges tolls based on traffic and the time of day. In other words, the toll at rush hour is going to be more than a toll at noon. Well, after uh, seeking and reviewing uh, approval from the Federal Highway Administration, the commission will implement value pricing to reduce traffic congestion, the bill says. The sort of a social engineering um, plan. They expect that if you are ha- if you have to pay during certain hours, you'll adjust your working time so that the congestion is spread out a bit more to avoid having to pay the uh, the toll, the bill says. Value pricing may include, but is not limited to, variable time of day pricing. Well, the tolling would help pay for an estimated $1.1 billion in congestion and freight relief projects on I-5 and I-205. The bill also calls for a number of tax increases, including increasing the statewide gas tax, increasing vehicle registration fees, really, could we pay any more, and a 3% tax on new bicycle sales, which, by the way, is not very popular in one segment of the uh, of our neighbors here in the uh, metro area. Well, as I mentioned, the legislature approved an ambitious $5.3 billion transportation tax and fee package. House Bill 2017 passed the Senate 22 to 7, including a four cent gas tax hike, $16 vehicle registration fee increase, 0.1% payroll tax, and 0.5% tax on new car sales. It also includes something that no other state in the country has. Keep Portland weird, Oregon weird, that is. A tax on the sale of bikes. Well, that means unless opponents challenge the bill at the ballot or in court starting January 1st of next year, New, bi- new bicycles, rather, with a wheel diameter of 26 inches or more and a retail price of $200 or more will be taxed a flat rate of $15. The tax will be collected by retailers at the time of sale. It should be noted that most states do tax the sale of bikes because they have sales tax and tax the sale of most goods, which Oregon does not. So I suppose it's not all that unique. But the money raised by the bike tax uh, will go directly to projects that expand and improve commuter routes for non-motorized vehicles and pedestrians. The most ambitious highway upgrade in a generation won final approval from the legislature last week as well. And while lawmakers consider the package of the bill a pretty big win, bicycle activists are less enthusiastic. Congratulations to Oregon, wrote Angie Schmidt on Street Blog USA on its uh, preposterous bike tax that accomplishes no discernible transportation goal except dampening demand for new bikes, end quote. The only way to like this tax is to think, one, it will quell the anger from people who think those bicycles don't pay their fair share. It won't, wrote Jonathan Mouse, editor of BikePortland.org. Or two, uh, you think the money it raises for infrastructure outweighs the potential uh, disincentive to new bike buyers, the erosion of profits from bike retailers, and the absurdity uh, of it on principles alone. That will tell, I suppose, he added. Well, I don't think $15, a one-time uh, fee tacked onto it is going to discourage most uh, bicycle riders, given the fact that uh, purchasing a new vehicle is going to cost you a whole lot more, as well as the registration and all of that. So I'm not sure that holds up, but everyone's entitled to share their opinion. 30 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about Oregon's massive expansion of taxpayer-funded abortion, House Bill 3391. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 35 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. First, House Bill 3391. Uh, That is uh, Oregon's massive expansion of taxpayer-funded abortion. It requires all private health insurers to offer free abortions without restrictions or co-pays, whether or not you're a resident of Oregon, whether or not you're a legal citizen of the United States. The one exception is Providence Health Plans, which had threatened to pull out of the state because of the abortion requirement. Instead, individuals covered by Providence will soon be able to obtain free Taxpayer-funded abortions through the Oregon Health Plan. Second, it gives $10.2 million to expand the Oregon Health Authority in order to provide services, drugs, devices, products, and procedures, including 100% free abortions to undocumented residents. Additionally, beyond expanding taxpayer-funded abortion, the law goes further by specifically barring public employees from inhibiting or restricting access to abortion in any way. ABC News summarized the law like this, saying in some states, such as New York, abortions are cost free if you are deemed medically necessary. The Oregon bill is unique, however, in that patients who have access to the procedure for virtually any reason at any time, including sex selective and late term abortions. So this is the place to be if you are looking for an abortion in the United States of America. In short, it's one of the most aggressive pro-abortion laws ever passed in the history of our country. So who's behind it? Well, the answer would be Planned Parenthood, along with a coalition of other pro-abortion organizations. They took credit for the bill in a press release issued uh, last week. The Pro-Choice Coalition of Oregon developed the legislation over the past two years with input from community leaders and legislators, it said. The chief sponsors are House Majority Leader Jennifer Williamson out of Portland, Representative Julie Fahey of Eugene and Jeff Barker of Aloha, and Senators Richard Devlin of Tualatin and Lori Moans Anderson of Gresham. The bill passed the Oregon House by a vote of 33 to 23 on the 1st of July, and on Wednesday, the state Senate voted 17 to 13 to send it to the governor's office, the governor's desk, for final approval. Every legislator who voted in favor of House Bill 3391 is a Democrat. Governor Brown, who has previously received campaign contributions from Planned Parenthood, is expected to sign the bill into law this week. So who wins? My answer to that question would be nobody. But I suppose in the broader context, the big winner here is clearly Planned Parenthood. According to the Oregon Health Authority, $23.8 million was paid to Planned Parenthood and other clinics for abortions covered by the Oregon Health Plan over the past 14 fiscal years. This new law will dramatically increase the amount of taxpayer money funneled into the abortion industry, Planned Parenthood being the number one abortion provider. So who loses? My answer would be everybody. But again, in the broader context, Pregnant women and their babies, not to mention their grandparents, their fathers, the uncles, and so on. They're going to be hurt the most by this legislation. It's long been known that Oregon is the only U.S. state without any laws to protect society's most vulnerable members from abortion. Now our state's ruling party has uh, gone even further by codifying into law a mother's ability to kill her own offspring at taxpayer expense, no less. Now, that's not new to Oregon, but the breadth of this new law is. With this latest expansion of abortion funding, Oregonians who don't want their tax dollars used for the destruction of human life are also losing big with this bill. House Bill 3391, which will soon be the law of the land, increases the moral and financial burden on Oregon taxpayers who are already being forced to pay for four in ten abortions in the state. Lastly, the rights of Oregon voters are being attacked by this legislature as well. By declaring the law an emergency, 
We talked about this and there was an effort to prevent this mechanism from uh, remaining in the state of Oregon by declaring the law an emergency. Lawmakers have stripped citizens of their right to challenge the law by voter referendum. This is truly an act of tyranny. So we can't do anything about it because they've declared this an emergency. We've been stripped of our right to challenge this law uh, through referendum. Well, it's hard not to be discouraged by a law that is so devastating on so many levels. It hurts pregnant women. It hurts babies. It violates the conscience of taxpayers and it handcuffs voters from exercising their rights. But despite all this, there are some positive ways the pro-life community can and should respond. To begin with, we can uh, take a moment right now to pray for an awakening in the church, not just around this issue, but the many issues about which I believe it grieves the heart of God. Many Christians, including pastors, have sadly been asleep on the issue of abortion for far too long. And we need to pray for this God, this ungodly law, that it would stir God's people into action beginning on their knees. Next, we can make a commitment today to support the Stop Taxpayer Funding of Abortion Act. Uh, this uh, grassroots citizens initiative led by Oregon Life United will block the stream of taxpayer dollars now funding approximately 3,700 abortions annually uh, through the Oregon. Uh, Oregon Health Plan. Now, this initiative will also reverse the expansion of taxpayer-funded abortion mandated uh, by House Bill 3391. I feel like I need to fact-check that because it's not altogether clear to me that that will be the case uh, with this bill that uh, will, I'm, I'm guessing, because the governor has already made it clear she intends to sign it. It's not clear to me that this initiative would do that, would reverse the expansion of taxpayer-funded abortion mandated by House Bill 3391 because this was declared a, a law, uh, uh, an, an emergency that strips citizens their right to challenge it. But um, uh, even if there's a remote possibility, I think it's worth moving forward. Uh, By the way, 117,000 valid signatures are needed to qualify uh, this measure for the next uh, statewide um, ballot. So keep that in mind. This is another of the, in quotes, accomplishments of the Oregon legislature. They also um, uh, passed two bills on Thursday decriminalizing small amounts of six hard drugs, including cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine and ecstasy. Great. The first of the two bills now headed to the governor's desk, House Bill 2355, decriminalizes possession of the drug so long as the offender has neither a felony nor more than two prior drug convictions on record, according to the Lund report. The second, House Bill 3078, reduces drug-related property crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. Republican State Senator Jackie Winters claimed the war on drugs as it currently exists amounts to institutional racism due to how more frequently minorities are charged with drug crimes than whites. There is, she goes on to say, empirical evidence that there are certain things that follow race. We don't like to look at the disparity in our prison system, Winters said during a hearing. It is institutional racism. We can pretend it doesn't exist, but it does. End quote. Well, the second bill reduces mandatory minimum sentences for many property crimes and also increases the number of previous convictions necessary for a felony charge. It provides $7 million in funding for diversion programs to help lower Oregon prison population. And Winters and other supporters of the bill argue the answer to American drug crisis is treatment, not prison time. She goes on to say it would uh, be like putting them in the state penitentiary for having diabetes. Well, not quite like that. That's a quote from uh, Democratic Representative Mitch Greenlick speaking again to the Lund Report. This is a chronic brain disorder and it needs to be treated this way. I think the effects of drug use certainly need to be treated. I'm not sure you could suggest it's the same as 
uh, diabetes. But nonetheless, the Oregon legislature passed two bills decriminalizing small amounts of uh, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and ecstasy. I fail to um, appreciate the logic behind that. And finally, when Allison Clues graduated from Oregon State University in 2009, this is according to the Oregonian, uh, she entered the job market during one of the worst economic times in U.S. history with tens of thousands of dollars in student loans to her name. She found a decent job at a restaurant, started making $250 monthly loan payments, but she soon decided to pursue an advanced degree and put the loans on deferment. Six years later, in 2016, she decided to suspend her pursuit of a doctorate uh, in uh, English literature at the University of Oregon, though she had a 200-page uh, but unfinished dissertation in hand. Her doctoral fellowship funding had dried up, and the only other option was to take on more debt. So while student loans made it possible for her to get an education, they ultimately compelled her to walk away. It was a strategic move on my part, she says. She's now 31 of her decision to leave school. Well, uh, the Oregonian native story, um, again, quoting from the Oregonian, illustrates the crushing financial reality that comes due after graduation day. The loans that make paying tuition and fees possible have to be paid back and in most cases with interest. Well, the uh, legislature has passed a new law to make universities share easy to understand debt data. Uh, The idea behind this is so that Um, uh, those students who are anticipating uh, taking out a loan will have a clear understanding of what exactly uh, they will be required to pay back. So state lawmakers approved this new law that will make it easier for students currently in college to know what they're facing financially once they're out of college. Starting in January, colleges and universities in Oregon will be required to uh, relay important federal financial aid information to students in an easy-to-understand and straightforward way. The new law applies to all public and private universities, community colleges, trade schools, other post-secondary institutions that accept federal financial aid. It's intended to add a new level of transparency to the process. It's uh, meant to ensure that students fully understand how much debt they are talk- uh, they're taking in or taking on to pay for their education and what they their estimated loan payments will be once they graduate. Graduate. So that uh, is um, another of the accomplishments of the uh, now uh, adjourned legislature. Senate Bill 253 requires that financial information be relayed to students in a unified and comprehensive manner and be written in plain language that is easy to understand. So there you have it. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here in uh, just a moment and uh, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, some weeks ago, I shared a story with you about a Christian geologist who was fighting with the Grand Canyon poobahs over whether or not he would have permission to gather um, rocks for his uh, his. Uh, work Well, the geologist has now won that fight. ChristianHeadlines.com uh, points out that the National Park Service has finally agreed to let the Christian geologist collect rock samples from the Grand Canyon for his research. Andrew Snelling, who was a Ph.D. in geology from the University of Sydney, tried for four years to get permission to collect these samples. The Park Service only agreed after lawyers with Alliance Defending Freedom filed a federal lawsuit. So that uh, that subtle pressure, if you will, was instrumental in uh, allowing him to do what he, by the way, had been uh, allowed to do before. When the government refuses to allow a Christian geologist simply to collect information because it dislikes his views, 
It undercuts science and violates the law. That's a quote from Gary McCaleb. He's a senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom and one of Snelling's lawyers. Well, Park Service officials initially denied his request after asking several other scientists to review his proposal. In other words, if they disliked what he was proposing to do with those samples, they would decline to give him permission. They lambasted his beliefs in young earth creationism and said he lacked proper scientific credentials as a PhD. Snelling has served as a uh, geology spokesman for the Creation Science Foundation, is the editor-in-chief of Answers Research Journal, a professional peer-reviewed journal. Both entities are affiliated with Answers in Genesis, a Christian apologetics organization that supports a young earth view of creation. Well, officials refused to grant Dr. Snelling uh, a permit because he didn't have a credible scientific track record. That's in quotes. But Snelling and his legal team maintained the denials and delays amounted to religious discrimination. Well, in its response to Alliance Defending Freedom's formal complaint, the Park Service acknowledged Snelling's proposal was well stated with methods that are similar or equal to standard scientific practice, end quote. Michael Kitchen, who's an attorney allied rather with ADF, he com- uh, commended the government for coming up with a solution that benefited everyone. Scientists must be allowed to pursue their research, put theories to the test and reach independent conclusions without the federal government blocking access to data based on a researcher's religious faith. Well, Snelling uh, will be allowed to collect his samples during an August 6th rafting trip. And despite the four year wait, Park Service officials denied any wrongdoing. Uh, Issuance of the administrative launch permit neither implies an admission of fault by the NPD, uh, NPS rather, nor does it set a precedent for future issuance of administrative launch permits. That's a quote from a spokesperson speaking to the Atlantic. In other words, uh, we may have lost this particular battle, but that does not mean we will grant requests by uh, others in the future with similar views, uh, requests to collect samples of the uh, Grand Canyon. And although Snelling's most recent research request generated a lot of attention, it's not his first time collecting samples from the Grand Canyon. The next month's trip is far from his first. Um, Snelling has served as a geologic interpreter on more than 30 river trips through the Grand Canyon since 1992 and has been permitted to collect samples um, prior to that as well. So anyway, I wanted to bring you the rest of the story involving this uh, Christian geologist Andrew Snelling. Uh, he's a PhD, so I should refer to him as Dr. Andrew Snelling. Uh, he has um, a PhD in geology from the University of Sydney, tried for four years to get permission to collect samples, and this is simply to collect them for further analysis at uh, some other location and was denied for uh, that long a period of time. So uh, gives you an example, another example, really, of Alliance Defending Freedom coming alongside those who are entitled to or should be entitled to um, things that the rest of the, the country and its citizens are entitled to. So kudos to ADF in that case. I don't know about you, but I watched with um, a broken heart um, the news story developing over the weekend regarding Kyron Horman, who has been missing uh, since 2010, and investigators have been probing that unsolved disappearance since the day it was announced. Well, this past weekend, they scoured a heavily forested area in searching for uh, clues in that case. And this was apparently an area they had not looked to before. This was on Sunday. Well, a search and rescue team looking for 
the young uh, the young boy who now would be, I believe, 15 years old, if not 14. Uh, they combed through an area about five miles from Skyline Elementary School here in Portland, collecting several items. But they did say that none of them appeared to be related to his disappearance. Uh, the Multnomah County Sheriff spokesman, Lieutenant Chad Gadios, uh, he said in uh, of the new uh, search, uh, which was conducted in an area that uh, they had not examined before, we want to ensure that no stone is unturned. Well, this wasn't based on any new information, he went on to say, though he stressed the case remains active and open. He added it's an investigation that will stay near and dear to our hearts until there's an answer. Well, Kyron Horman was seven years old when he disappeared in June of 2010. His little face, that smile, and the glasses are etched in my memories, and I know the memories of others in the Portland metro area who followed this story very closely. Again, he was a second grader when he disappeared. It was June the 4th, 2010 in rural northwest Portland that sparked the largest search and rescue operation in the state of Oregon. He was last seen alive by his stepmother, Terry Horman, uh, who told investigators she dropped the boy off at school at uh, uh, to attend a science fair that morning. Well, Terry Horman, who now lives in California and goes by her maiden name, Terry Moulton, has never been named as a suspect in the case and denies harming the boy. However, the child's mother, Desiree Young, has said she believes that uh, Terry is responsible for her son's disappearance. This is a mother speaking uh, to the loss of her son. Well, over the years, there have been intense searches for uh, Kyron, who would be 14. I think I misspoke earlier. Uh, He would be 14 today. Uh, They've come up empty. No arrests have been made uh, in this case, and the clues have been very sparse. In May, the FBI launched a digital billboard campaign to draw attention to Oregon's biggest missing person case, running billboards showing Kyron uh, age-enhanced image, and uh, maybe you've seen those, uh, to see the face that is so familiar to many of us from June of 2010 to the enhanced uh, face of what would be a 14-year-old. That was circulated by the FBI uh, around the uh, around the country. It was enhanced um, an image to Portland, Salem, Bend, Corvallis, Medford, and elsewhere. Uh, says um, his mother, "My son is the reason I get up every day and fight to bring him home." Uh, in May, at an event in Salem, she marked a National Missing Children's Day. She said, "I want to see that smile again. I want to hear that laugh. Most of all, I want to feel that hug. I will never give up." How does a mother give up and where do you go when there are no clues to the disappearance of this young man apart from on your knees asking God to guide those who are responsible for finding and looking for this uh, this young boy? Uh, I appeal to the people or persons that have um, that bit of information that they may not feel is relevant to contact law enforcement, she went on to say. And the Oregonian newspaper reported some days the hope for that our child will come home is that uh, uh, that is what keeps us going. It's our job as parents to keep our, our child's case in the public eye and keep hope alive so the public keeps looking for all missing children, uh, she went on to say in The Oregonian. But that search apparently yielded no new information, but did remind the public of that face, what that face would look like now that he's uh, he would be 14 years old, and to continue to search for him and for anyone who has information that may seem insignificant to them, but might be helpful to law enforcement to please come forward with that information. Tomorrow, we're going to talk with Dr. Meg Meeker. She is the author of Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Family Needs. It's a book published by Regnery Faith, and she'll be our guest tomorrow to talk um, about that. We're also going to take a look at the young child in the UK whose life hangs in the balance as the parents are seeking to 
uh, appeal to the uh, the judge there to allow them to seek alternative um, health care. And there's also been uh, an effort here in the United States to provide uh, uh, help for this uh, this young boy as well. We'll talk about that tomorrow uh, on the program. So looking forward to that. want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. James Blend is on vacation, but he is technically the producer. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us tomorrow. Again, my guest, Dr. Meg Meeker, the book Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Family Needs. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.